Let's jump back into our funny word here. Do we have our funny word up there? The word is yashab, right? And those of you guys who were with us a couple of weeks ago, you know we're standing up a thought here, and I'm picking up the idea that life is kind of like a board game. Or if you're a modern video player, it's kind of like a video game. Uh, it's, it's sort of like going on and playing Fortnite or uh, Call of Duty or Monopoly or Risk or any of those things. Those things exist because they tell the story about your reality, right? The reason why you tap into those kind of games and you jump into them and you put on a character and you live in that space, it's, it's sort of like a fantasy version of real life. And, but you kind of get to be a superhero in that thing. You've got powers and you can maybe fly. You've got a jet pack. You can shoot stuff and blow things up. There's all kinds of things about that. But the reason why you kind of get it is it taps into stuff that's already in you. You are already living the game. Right? So when you go to live your life, and that word yeshab we're going to see, and you can turn to Psalm 24 with me. Remember 2024, Psalm 24. Easy to, easy to connect the series. Psalm 24 is going to play a role for us of of being, as I said a couple weeks ago, a bit of an instruction manual for the game, right? So if you can imagine, we started this year and everybody for Christmas got the board game Yashab, and you've never seen it before, you've never seen that word before, you have no idea how to even pronounce it, Uh, but it's, it's the game of existence, the game of dwelling in God's creation, And that's all you know about it. And you open the box up and you take out the instructions and you begin to read the instructions because you're trying to figure out how on earth do you play this funny sounding game? Can I just point out something obvious in my illustration here? Is, Is that how you greeted your life? Right At some point, and I get you don't come out of, you know, I just was born yesterday and I'm a little baby and I'm going to do all this. At some point in your life, you, you kind of do need to realize I've been given something that I have no idea what to do with. Now, there's some other people who have gone before me and they've done some things with it. And I'm related to some people and some people live in my house with me. They, they're doing some stuff. But quite honestly, I've been given something. I don't know what to do with it. Well, how are you going to figure that out? When you go to do 2024 this year and and play the game, and everybody's playing the game, how are you going to figure out what to do, what not to do? What do you do do when it's your turn? Right, It's going to be your turn this week. Maybe today's a little bit of a break, but you're going to roll the dice on Monday, and you're going to do stuff, and you're going to have a strategy for it, and you're going to make a move because it's going to take you somewhere it's going to accomplish something. It's, it's going to produce something or bring something into your life. And you're convinced that if I make that move, that's a good move. You've got a strategy when you go to do this, right? But did you carefully read the instructions? To figure, am, am, am I going where the game goes? Am I seeking to win the game? Or do we even know how to win the game? Do you, do you know how to win the game of life? And I don't mean the one where you kind of have the little spinning wheel and you go through and you have payday, etc. I mean the game you and I are living in every day of our lives. Do you, do you know how to win? Do you know if you're doing well right now? All right, well, Psalm 24, very helpful, brief instructions on how to play the game. Verse 1, open the box and we understand 
the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. That word dwell is our word, yeshab. What are you doing here? Well, I'm, I'm dwelling in God's world. I am existing and doing my existence in something that was created, not by me, but by God. For he, he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. We're going to come back and visit those two verses next week. And you're going to get to see why that song we sang this morning is so powerful. One word from you, things change. Well, why is that? Well, because the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. And everybody who dwells therein, he founded it, he established it. But then it raises a question, and this is the verses I want to go after today. It raises a question of, what are you doing here? And what are you going to be doing in 2024? Verse 3, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. He, he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who are doing what? Seeking him. Who seek the face of the God of Jacob. That's what this instructions assumes when you go to roll the dice and move your little piece through life it assumes you're doing that you are ascending a hill you are seeking after something you want something more than you want anything else and that one thing prioritizes everything else the game assumes that Listen, you and I do life in daily spaces, right? So you got stuff going on this week. You got stuff going on today. And you prioritize some things. You're here today because you made this a priority. And maybe you're not here sometimes because you make something else a priority. I make, I make daily decisions in my life. But daily decisions, small spaces, small decisions, small value elements, small relational decisions, all that stuff flows out of bigger questions ultimate questions at least it should and you know if you're you know that when i use that word existence it's very hard for me not to bump into the the philosophical elements of existentialism uh, the study of your existence right philosophy wants to figure out okay so what the heck's going on around here right what's daily life supposed to be and how do i how do i do this well philosophy always is seeking to answer three questions and psalm 24 is going to answer those three questions for us right It wants to answer the question of origin. There's something in every one of us that needs to figure out, where where did I come from? What's my origin? Well, Psalm 24 in our answers that, doesn't it? Well, well, Keith, uh, the earth is the Lord's. He established it. He formed it. So where'd you come from? What's your origin? You, You originate in the Lord. And that word Lord there is not just so spooky higher power. It's Yahweh, the personal name in the Old Testament for the God who created everything. So that's my starting place. 
when I go to do the game, I, I want to figure out where I'm from because that tells me something about my second quest. Purpose. Philosophy wants to interact with purpose because you and I want to have reasons for what we do. We want to have meaning in our lives. What do I do with this life? What is meaningful for me to do with this life? And then the last question is, where am I headed? How's this, how's this going to work out in the end? What's the destination to arrive at? Right now, you and I can get really, really busy and ignore these questions, but they are the questions of life. And they are the ones that inform, what am I going to do this week? What am I going to prioritize? And, and let's face it, we're, we're complicated people. And we get busy flying through life. I think I put in your outline there a quote from Oz Guinness. Oz Guinness is a wonderful thinker. was a missionary for years. He says, most of us feel immortal in our teens and 20s. Then we move through life so fast in our 30s and 40s that we lose sight of the journey and think only of our careers. Even in our 50s, we barely hear the roar of the rapids several bends down river. And he asks this question. Have you awakened to the journey of life? Or are you just lost in the details? Hectic schedule. I got to be an Uber driver all week long. Take my kids here. Take my kids there. I got this deadline at work. Uh, and the house needs to be repaired. And who's going to meet the plumber this week? And, and we're just doing life, right? Have you awakened to the journey of life? All this stuff is going somewhere. There's a destination for life. We're just doing it, but it's going somewhere. And maybe as busy Americans, we've stopped asking these very meaningful questions and we're just absorbed in the busyness of life. Right? Even back when ancient philosophers like Socrates said, the unexamined life is not worth living. The unexamined life. So part of what I want to do with this series is get us to examine our lives. Get, get us to rethink our strategy. Why do I do what I'm doing? And, and if you'll notice, we're a little bit complicated, right? There's a, you notice there's a difference between you as a human being and the unique design that you have. And even if you're here, you're watching, you're not even sure God exists. There's some elements about your uniqueness that advertise that God did something to put things in you that you go about living out of them every day of your life. I mean, let's face it. You're not, you're not like an ant living in an ant pile. You're not a tomato plant. You're not a migratory bird who's just doing things out of instinct. You're much more complicated than that, aren't you? You, you have a story in your life. There are things that you are looking for to make sense out of your life. You have things like philosophy and history and you have memories You have things that have happened in the past that you're trying to figure out. What what does that matter for me right now? You're much more complicated than that, right? And when we interact with the Psalms, I know Aaron interacted with the Psalms last week. And Psalm 24 is an interaction with the Psalm. Psalms, they kind of bring commentary to our existence in life. They cry out when life is painful. They raise questions when life is confusing. We relate to this because... It's examining life, right? So here's, let me give you a passage that, ex, that interacts with our existence. Psalm 103, verse 15. It says, as for man, his days are like grass. 
He flourishes like a flower of the field. For the, the wind passes over it and it's gone. And its place knows it no more. How's that for an existence description? How does that make you feel about your life? Can I tell you when this verse for me came to life in a haunting way? It was shortly after my dad died. And the realities of this verse screamed at me about a man who had lived 96 years of his life, obviously all of my life, having him in the picture, in the life frame, meaningful person, extremely influential, the recipient of his love and his care that was so rich and meaningful to me. And I read that verse, and it's like the bottom of my gut fell out of me to think, that's it? He was... He was just like a flower that grew up in a field and it was there for a brief season and the wind passed over it and then it's gone and the valley doesn't even know he even existed anymore. Isn't that a little weird? How many of you guys live in a house that you didn't build? People lived there before you, right? You know anything about them? Can you tell me their story? They did life like you. They had marriages. They had children. They celebrated stuff. They accomplished things in their lives. You don't know anything about them, do you? They slept in the same bedroom that you sleep in. They sat in the same room, watched TV. They cooked on the same stove that you cook on. Do you know anything about them? They're not significant to you, are they? All right, I got some bad news for you. That's you in a few years. Right? Isn't that kind of sobering for me to think of all the things that I've done, worried about, sweated, went through this activity, struggled through that, paid a painful price, did this, did that, and, and you know, just a few years from now, no one's going to remember my name. Like if I quiz my kids right now, they couldn't tell you their great-grandfather's name. Right? I'm not sure I could. (laughs) Because they just kind of existed. And they are no more. And then you and I go and do life. And do we carry that with us? It's kind of like, does your life have any value on a day-to-day basis? Is Is it heading anywhere? Or are you just busy, 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 worked up, freaking out, telling that person off, angry, gossiping, slandering this one? withdrawing from this one. I mean, we're all worked up about all kinds of stuff. Over what? You're just like a little flower who grew up in, and the wind just kind of, that was you. Right? Do you hear that gust of wind, how quickly that just went by? That was 2023. And maybe a few more gusts of wind are going to blow on you in 2024. You get one more, 2024, there it went. 2025, right? Is that it? Well, God speaks this, right? This is what God brings into our reality of temporary nothingness. Verse 17 of 103. But, right? But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those 
who fear him and his righteousness to children's children, to those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments. Oh yeah, you, you can subscribe to the idea you're just a little flower growing up in a field and the wind blows over it and you're gone and nobody even notices you contributed anything to anybody. But there's something bigger than that. Life has some bigger components to it. You might want to keep this in mind when you go to do life on a daily basis. The loving kindness of God is from everlasting to everlasting. That is in your life in a way that will never go away. And it will be the thing that, it's the force that's going to guide you through the eternity that God has prepared for you. But there's a little bit of connection in this, right? Those who fear him, those who are in covenant with him, those who keep his commandments. And then there's a little bit more of a factor here, right? You keep reading in Psalm 103, verse 19. The Lord has established, right? That's what he said in Psalm 24. He established all this. He established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. There's a kingdom out there. You and I live in a setting where there's a kingdom, there's rulers and there's powers and stuff taking place. I, mean, I, I just thought there was the Iowa caucus last week. I didn't know anything about this. There's some people going to make some decisions. They're going to elect an official. Big deal. But how come that is a big deal to us, right? How many of us are pulling our hair out, if we got some hair left, over the political situation in our country and where it's going? But there's these kingdoms that last forever. And there's a throne that God is sitting on. Verse 20, bless the Lord. Oh, you his angels. You mighty ones who do his word, obeying the voice of his word. Did you notice that you're roommates with these creatures? They're doing stuff all around us. As I go to do 2024, they're in our world with us. Verse 21, bless the Lord. All his hosts, his ministers who do his will, bless the Lord. All his works in all places of his dominion, bless the Lord, oh my soul. All right, so for me to do daily space stuff, like be a little flower that flourishes just for a moment and the wind blows over me, for, for me to be that man, I need some bigger truths in my life. I need things that answer, where did I come from? And what am I doing here? And where am I going? And what's in God's universe and God's creation? And what role is he playing? What are other creatures doing here among me as I go to plan my 2024? And I pull out my planner and I make a, a big deal plan out of stuff that apart from transcendent realities, apart from that, everything else about our life is just, and that's it. Not worth getting worked up over. Unless God has brought something everlasting and eternal and powerfully deeper than the temporary stuff of this world. And that's where Psalm 24 takes us. So verse 1 and 2 pulls us into the origin. How do we get here, right? And next week I'll talk a little bit about just that informs the space that we live in. That informs what we think is worth pursuing or not. What's right and what's wrong. That's going to get filled in by, hey, where did all this stuff come from? But here's a big question for us. When we get to verse 3, who shall ascend 
the hill of the Lord. Who will stand in his holy place? All right, that's my question for us today. Right? What did I title this thing? What am I doing here this year? What am I doing? When I go to do life this year, does this sound like what I'm doing? What am I doing today? What you got going on today? What you got scheduled this week? What are you going to turn your attention and focus on? Does it sound like ascending the hill of the Lord, standing in his holy place, seeking his face? Does that explain whatever I'm going to be doing this week? Because that seems to be the game plan that God has for us. Here's what Charles Spurgeon said about this Psalm 24. He's he's rescuing it a little bit from a brief application in the justification category. Listen to what he says. He says, it would be a delightful theme for Christian meditation to consider the ascension of Christ. This is in light of Psalm 24. The ascension of Christ in relation to his work. What we obtain by it and the glories with which it was accompanied when with a shout of saved joy he returned to his own throne and sat down forever having finished the labor which he had undertaken to perform. But this morning I must take the text apart from its connection for I desire to make it the basis of a set of parables or illustrations with regard to Christian life. I think we may fairly compare the life of a Christian to the ascent of a mountain. And we may then ask the question, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? This has been, in fact, a favorite metaphor, and even the mighty master of allegory, John Bunyan, right, Pilgrim's Progress, who needed to borrow from, from never needed to borrow from another, must have the, the hill difficulty somewhere or other to make his story complete. He must tell how the pilgrim fell from running to going and from going to clamoring upon his hands and knees because of the steepness of the place. Without putting any strain upon the text, I conceive I may use it as a most serious question while I picture our course to heaven as an ascent into the hill of the Lord. All right, so let me join Charles Spurgeon and John Bunyan and others who have gone before us to talk about ascending a hill. And in doing so, I'm going to be talking about us doing some things that has a particular kind of impact on our relationship with God. Charles Spurgeon was trying to be careful in that quote to make sure that what he was about to say wasn't interfering with the doctrine of justification. And I want to make sure that that's true for us, too, as we kind of navigate this. This Yashab existence, it's, it's not a story of daily self-justification. If you talk to the average person and you ask them about God and about faith, about going to heaven, etc., they're going to talk to you about being a good person. Well, you know, I think I'm a pretty good person. I mean, I, mean, hey, I know. I could, yeah, I could do better. I could do a little bit more of this. But, but overall, I think I'm, I'm pretty good. And so that becomes the reason why we play the game. I'm trying to figure out how to be a good person. Is that, is that what religion is for you? It's like, let me get around some stuff that I, I, I keep these rules and I don't do that. I don't do that behavior. That's, this is good. I, you know, I think I'm a pretty good person. Well, what's interesting in Psalm 24 is these, these locations, this hill of the Lord, this holy place, these are descriptions of the tabernacle that God created. And in the tabernacle, 
there's something that God is after in the tabernacle. And unless you're a bad dispensational theologian, which if you know what that is, uh, and you probably are one, um, you have a, a mistaken understanding that the Old Testament tabernacle, the Old Testament system was like this failed experiment. That somebody came up with a way for man to approach God based on his own righteousness. And he tried and he tried and he tried and he tried. And eventually he got convinced that that doesn't work. You're going to need Jesus to do it for you. Well, that's kind of like partially true, except that it, it mislocates the tabernacle and the Old Testament system as like this lab experiment. It, it's not a lab experiment, right? It actually gets along with the New Testament. When you stand up the tabernacle, there was a reason why God built that thing. Do you, do you remember this from Exodus 25 after God had given instruction? He takes Moses up into heaven He's gone on the mountain for 40 days. Moses gets a heavenly revelation of a tabernacle in heaven. This thing exists somewhere else. And so therefore, it's it's not about something that's going to make you righteous, better. But it's got a purpose in God. And God turns around and says, take up an offering from everybody because I want you to build me a sanctuary. And Exodus 25 says, let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. Why were they making a tabernacle? So that he might dwell among us. God wanted to be near to us. The tabernacle wasn't this thing where God just said, hey, okay, here's a bunch of rules. About to trick you. Y'all try and keep them now. And then when you get really, really frustrated, we'll talk. And I'll send Jesus. Uh, The law does do that to us. It does convince us that we can't reach God on our own. But this isn't the Tower of Babel. This is the tabernacle. The Tower of Babel was man in his own ingenuity, his own strength, his own striving, trying to build a tower that they could reach God. The tabernacle was God designing something for him to come be with us. So God wants to dwell in our midst. So this is not about... Self-justification. Ascending hills is not about self-justification. If you study the tabernacle, do you know how anybody got justified in the tabernacle? It, It wasn't by you bringing offerings and you, oh, look how far I traveled, right? How do you get justified? How do you walk away from the tabernacle with a sense of I'm completely right with God? Was it because, well, you know what? You know, I traveled from the far reaches of Israel to come here to the tabernacle. So I probably acquired about, I don't know, 30% of my right, my right standing with God, my justification by doing that. And, and then, I, then I gave up a goat from my own herd. So I'm going to be without that. So I did something good. So that's probably another 20%. So I'm probably about 50% justified right now. Does that sound like the tabernacle to you? That's ridiculous sounding, isn't it? Because the tabernacle is this weird thing with all these details of do this and don't do that and do this and don't do that and do this and don't do that. But do you know how anybody gets forgiven in the tabernacle? Leviticus chapter 16. It's the weirdest chapter that sits in the midst of all these Levitical instructions on wear this, dip your left finger in this, wear that thing, don't wear this, don't do this on that day, do this on that day. All that detail and then Leviticus 16 comes along and says... Here's how you get forgiven. An innocent lamb 
receives all your guilt and your sin and dies in your place. And a scapegoat removes your sins so that there's nothing between you and your God. All right, if all this other stuff was about getting right with God, what on earth was that for then? But the reality is you and I get right with God one way, only one way. And the tabernacle demonstrated that for us. It removes our sin and it reconciles us to God through the death of the innocent one. It does it through substitutionary atonement. That's what Leviticus chapter 16 is all about. And that's what Jesus Christ was all about when he came. He was a substitutionary atonement to make us right with God. So when Psalm 24 comes along and says, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Well, he who has clean hands and a pure heart and who does not lift up his soul to idols. What do you do with that? Well, that's just a description of Jesus. Well, yes, it is. But that's not all it is. All that stuff where God actually manifests his character and his life. When you you hear the Ten Commandments, that's not just there for Jesus to fulfill them. It is there for us to obey. It is an expression of the nature and character of God. So one of the things that you and I are that sin has disturbed it is we're image bearers of God. So when we go to bear his image, what does his image look like? Well, it looks like a lot of what you see in the tabernacle. It looks like holiness, and it looks like his character. It looks like his love. It looks like how you treat other people. It looks like honoring him above all other things. It looks like something. And so when the Bible turns around and says, who's going to ascend the hill of the Lord? Well, he who has clean hands and a pure heart and who doesn't lift up his soul. To idols. It's a weird Bible if you're reading it like, well, that was for Jesus to do. That's got nothing to do with me. Really? So once Jesus fulfilled that, you can just have dirty hands and impure hearts and lift up your soul to anything that comes along? Is it, does that sound cool? I, I thought God was doing something. Well, he wanted to dwell among us. And the second he wanted to do that, he said, hey, don't let anybody come too close for me because they'll be cooked instantly. I am a consuming fire. He had to do something to even get us to be close to him. And there's something here in the Bible more than just how God justifies us. There is a nearness to God in the Bible. And you read it in the Psalms. Psalm 73 is one of my most favorite Psalms in all of scripture. It tells a story not of a guy who's trying to figure out how to, how to get justified with God. He's trying to figure out how to get near God. Right, If you go back and read Psalm 73, we've preached from it a couple different times in the last couple years. You know, the man tells his story. Surely God is good. He's good to Israel. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. And he starts telling his story about this slipping life where he looked upon people who were ungodly and didn't give God the time of day and he was jealous for having a life like they had. And he feels like, you know, God hasn't done this for me and he hasn't done this for me. And why is this happening? Why is this happening? And his heart is getting farther and farther and farther away from God. And he says, until I came into the sanctuary of God. And it's like my, my sanity returned. He wasn't describing a desire in this moment to get right with God. He eventually realizes, who have I in heaven but you? And there's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My, my life, my heart, my breath may fail, but God, you are my portion. The, this is what he said. The nearness of God is my good.
Well, isn't it interesting? That's what God was after in giving us a tabernacle. Build this for me that I may be near you. I may dwell among you. So dwelling with God is a big deal. Being near to God, that's a good phrase. There's only one thing that justifies you and you can't do a thing but receive it. There are a number of things that help you experience the nearness of God and you can do something about that. You do need to see those as two separate things. You're never partially justified, right? So there's not like, hey, last year was a good year for me. I was really close in the justification category. This year, not so much. I'm probably about 50% justified this year. You understand? That's not how justification works. So clean hands and pure hearts and lifting up your soul, to that, that doesn't justify you. Even if you get all that stuff right, it's not going to justify you. But it is going to have an impact on the nearness of God and you're experiencing the nearness of God. Abraham Kuyper wrote in a massive book called To Be Near Unto God, and it's his meditations on Psalm 73 and a few other places. He was a pastor in the Netherlands. Uh, he helped form the Reformed uh, Christian churches there. He was also a senator and a prime minister in the Netherlands, etc. But he says this. He says in Scripture, the house or dwelling is presented as a means by which to make our fellowship with God assume a definite form. God also has a house. And the idea of dwelling in the house of our God is the richest thought that is given us. To set forth the most intimate and tenderest fellowship with him. Purposefully, therefore, the tabernacle of the Lord is erected in the wilderness. Moreover, it's stated that at Horeb, God himself shows Moses the pattern of the tabernacle. Hence, tabernacle and temple were actual representations of what exists in heaven. Listen, and in connection with this, the ardent longing to dwell in the house of the Lord finds expression in the Psalms. The longing of our hearts to be near to God, to actually experience God up close in our world with us, in our space with us. That is what the psalmist longs for. And can I just say this? In our attempts in being gospel-centered, and we have made sure in gospel-centeredness that none of us are interfering with the doctrine of justification. None of us are overlooking or minimizing the fact that Christ had to do all this for us. He had to die in our place. His blood had to be shed. Any hope that we have of being near to God is because of what he did, not so much because of what we have did. And that's got to get protected in the body of Christ. But you can have a PhD in justification and be a kindergartner in nearness. You can think my whole Christian life is just about me making sure I can explain the doctrine of salvation correctly. Can I just tell you the doctrine of the justification of God is a doorway. It's a doorway. What are doorways for? To let you into something. It's a doorway that everybody is locked out of. It's a doorway that you can never find a key for. It's a doorway that you can't blow open. You can't amass enough goodness in you to knock that door down and you're going to get near to God. It's a doorway. But when God opens the door to you, what do you do? Stand at the door and tell everybody there's a door? Justification, as powerful and important as it is, is a means to an end. 
God justifies us so that he might be near to us. That he might open a door for me to be reconciled to him, to dwell with him, to relate to him, to open my life to him, to walk with him in intimacy. Right? Here's a psalm. Here's what a psalm sounds like when it's trying to talk to you about justification. Psalm 51. This is after David has sinned against God. Have mercy. Have mercy on me, O God. According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. How's that going to happen? Leviticus 16 and only Leviticus 16. David's got no blood that he can shed. There's nothing he can do and nobody else has got any blood that can be shed for the forgiveness of sins. That's only Leviticus 16. You're crying out to be made right with God. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgression, my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, that you would be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. This is a man who realizes, I need to be made right with God. I need to have my sins forgiven. And there's only one way for that to happen. But Psalm 27 is not seeking after justification. It's seeking something else. Psalm 27 verse 4. One thing, David said, one thing have I asked of the Lord, and that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord. That may yashab, that's the same word, in the house of the Lord, all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord, to inquire in his temple. In verse 8, he says, you have said, seek my face, my Heart says to you, your face do I seek. This is not a man seeking to be justified here. This is a man whose heart longs for the presence of God, longs for the nearness of God, longs to dwell near God in a way that he experiences the nearness of God. That's what he's after in this verse. I wrote in your outline, I think I did. There is a striving after God or a drawing near to God that's not about increasing righteousness in our accounts, thus attaining some greater status with God. It is about fellowship. It is about communion. It is about nearness with God. Abraham Kuyper again says, For many years, you may have had a general love for God and yet have never come To know God. This knowledge of God only comes when love for him begins to take on a a personal character. I think in some ways that's, that's a great description of us before we knew Christ. He goes on and says, when on the pathway of life for the first time you met him. Can you remember that for yourself? That at some point you met God. You can go back and remember that. Something became personal and intimate to me. Right, February 1979 for me. I'm a teenager, I'm in high school, I'm living life. And that first line, a general love for God, yet never come to know God, that was me. I'd been in church. I could tell you the story about Jesus. I knew about the resurrection. I knew about angels and saints, and I, I knew a lot of stuff about God. And if you asked me just in there, hey, do I love God? I would have said, yeah. I didn't know him. I knew some stuff about him. 
I not met him in this intimate longing. My heart is awakened to God in a way that suddenly everything around me has come to life. But in February of 1979, I did. I met Christ. I came to life. And all of a sudden, it was like, I remember AJ telling me one day he went and got glasses at one point, And he hadn't had glasses for years. And he walked outside. And he was like, power lines. You know, it's like. <laughs> Hadn't seen those all these years. Well, everything spiritual came to life for me that way. I had never seen this stuff before. I'm in high school. Uh, I, I love sports. I'm playing sports. And all of a sudden, some of you guys remember Crescent City School, right? Crescent City Baptist. It's like I had never known. That's a, that's a religious school. Baptist, it's a Baptist school? But I didn't know because I had done drugs with the guys on the basketball team. So I'm thinking, wait. And then I, every day I drove past on my way to school. Every day. John Curtis Christian school. I never noticed it said Christian school on there. They were just John Curtis. I grew up in River Ridge and there was lots of problems with people who attended John Curtis. No offense. But, you know, we did bad stuff and I knew guys there and all of a sudden I'm thinking, wait, wait, the stuff that I've been doing with these guys doesn't go with this whole Christian thing. It's like something came alive in me. And the idea that there was a personal God who knew what I was doing when nobody else was watching, all of a sudden it mattered to me. I, I was feeling conviction. I was feeling that's, that's not right. Why was it not right? Well, I wasn't quoting Psalm 24 back then, but I was recognizing the earth is the Lord's. This, this is his place. And my life is his. And the way I live it, even if nobody else sees, he sees. And suddenly that mattered to me, and I didn't need anybody to tell me what to do or not to do in the right or wrong category. My heart suddenly wanted to do things differently, right? That's this description. But what's interesting here in Psalm 24 and Psalm 27, written both by David, David's not a newbie. This isn't David like living like, you know, some guy who never read his Bible. He's never heard of God. And all of a sudden he has this conversion experience. Prophet shows up, says, there's this God named Yahweh. He created everything, David. And you really need to to surrender your life to him. It's kind of a classic conversion moment. That's not David. David knows the Lord. David has walked with him. God has revealed himself to David. God has been powerfully involved in David's life. When he utters these words, one thing I ask of the Lord, one thing, one thing I'm seeking in my life that I may dwell in the house of the Lord. This is not this man coming to know the Lord. This is a man who knows the Lord, whose heart is launching out to be near to God. Kuiper says the craving can prepare the way for higher things. I could stop right now. But I won't. But what if, what if you don't have that craving? What if you're starting 2024 and you're sitting in this room where you're watching a, a video feed and your heart doesn't sound like this? One thing. You said, seek your face. My heart, oh God, says, I want to seek your face. What if you're starting this year? And that's not what's in you. That's a problem. A sobering problem. We're not just here to go through motions. We're not in a relationship with God just to to do some things on the outside. God's after hearts that want to dwell with him. 
And the craving can prepare, as Kuiper says, the way for higher things. For when it comes to a meeting with God, the action proceeds from both sides. God comes to him, and he comes to God. First from afar, then even closer, until at length all distance falls away, and the meeting takes place, a moment of such blessedness as can never be expressed in words. Then, and only then, comes the nearness. It's going to be a weird question if I ask you, not, are you, are you saved? Are you justified? Going into 2024? That'd be one question, right? What if I asked you, are you, are you near to God? That's a little different question, isn't it? That's about my affections and my delight and my value and my pursuit and my seeking. To be near is to be so close to God that your eye sees, your heart is aware of, your ear hears him, and every cause of separation has been removed. Near in one of two ways, either that you feel yourself, as it were, drawn up into heaven, or that God has come down from heaven to you and seeks you out in your loneliness, in that which constitutes your particular cross, or in the joy that falls to your lot. The word near implies that there is, oh, so much that makes separation between you and your God, so much that makes you stand alone feel desolate and forsaken because either God is away from you or you are away from him. I'm not talking about justification here. I'm not talking about you getting saved. Kuiper's not talking about you getting saved. He's a reformed theologian. He understands salvation. He's talking about the experiencing of the dwelling of God. With or without the tabernacle, Israel is still God's people. God still makes covenant with them, calls them out of Egypt, rescues them from sin's corruption, and gives them a relationship with them. But he wants to dwell among them. He wants to be near to them. Quick thoughts. Last week, Aaron pointed out to us that life has consequences. Little decisions that we make have consequences. And he told a colorful story, if you were here or watched, about a young guy that he knew who just sitting, I think, after a parade, just throwing up. <laughs> just throwing up, right? Some of us can remember those days. It's like we didn't, we didn't decide well in light of what the destiny of where these decisions were taking us, right? There was a destination. If you drink all that, there's a destination as to where you're headed. And it's going to be sitting on a curb throwing up. There are, there are consequences in our lives. And there's consequences tucked into this concept of raising the question. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Well, he who has clean hands in a pure heart, and who doesn't lift up his soul to what is false. All right, well, what if I decide not to have clean hands? What if I decide, after all that's been done to me, or something that I don't really care for, or a heightened moment of self-pity, I don't have a pure heart, and I don't have any intention on fixing that either. And last year was full of me lifting up my soul to things that were not God. 
I chase this, I chase that, I put my hope in this, and I put my hope in that. I longed for this, and I banked on that. And I'm probably going to do a little bit more of that in 2024. There's, there's consequences to that. And I think for many, many, unfortunately, in America, in the body of Christ today, the nearness of God is not near. The influence of God upon our souls is too distant from us. Because our hands are touching things they shouldn't be. And our hearts are not pure. And we've lifted our souls up to things that we should never have put our hope and trust in those things. So here's 2024, right? And I'm going to play the game. And I'm going to need a strategy. What am, I, what am I doing this year? What's this all about? Right? Where does this thing go? How do I know if I'm succeeding at the, the, the game that I'm trying to play? How do I know? Well, there's this, there's this one thing that God prizes in this setting. And can I tell you, it's, it is the end game. It is the destiny of where we're headed. All right, Seth, go ahead and come back up here. Let me, let me read this passage to you. This is where all this is going, right? When you, this is the proverbial and the good moment for us to use these words. When you put all the game back together and put it back in the box, right? When you're done playing the game, you're in Revelation chapter 21. This is the end of the game. Listen to where the game is going. Revelation 21 verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. Remember, he founded this earth on the seas, right? That's what Psalm 24, okay, well, what he founded is no more. Put it back in the box, game over. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. I don't know the majesty in this moment. I don't know what the orchestration sounds like in this moment. But this is a big moment. There is lights and there is ominous feeling of this new Jerusalem coming down from where it's coming into our existence and we're going to see it. And not only, I'm sorry. And I saw the holy city coming down from heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne. This is the first thing you heard. The first thing you're going to hear in that moment saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. Do you have any feel for what that announcement must feel like to God? To be able to take us from all the things that have put us at a distance from him. And he says in the end, behold, I'm with you. I'm among you. I am near to you. Listen, there's something about this earth that that is an interrupted thing. You and I have some aspect of the dwelling of God, but you don't have it in fullness. It awaits a new heaven and a new earth. If you think this is as good as it gets, because you're a New Testament Christian and those poor Old Testament Christians, and we've got the Holy Spirit. You do. You've got all kinds of things. But, you know, I put this verse in here. Romans chapter 8 awakens in you. There's 
Something in you longing for something else besides here. What is it longing for? It's longing for what Adam lost. The nearness of God. The very life of God being near to me. Uninterrupted. Not blurry, not confused, not at a distance, but near to me. Right? Romans 8 says, for the creation awaits with eager longing. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Not just creation. We ourselves. We who have the first fruits. We who are born again and have the Holy Spirit. We groan inwardly. We wait for adoption as sons. What do you, what do you think that groaning is groaning for? Do you think it's waiting for a body that you can run the hundred meter faster in? Do you think that's what your groaning is about? I'm going to be smarter in that moment. It's waiting for a larger brain that I can take some other. It's a new creation. I'm going to get a new body. Do you think that's what you're longing for on the inside of you? Groaning because it feels like it's just not present. Behold dwelling place of God is with men that day is going to be unbelievable because all that longing for the beauty of God to dwell in the house of God to be near to him to gaze upon his beauty my soul desperately longs to gaze upon the beauty of God it's it's why everything in this world comes up short love everybody here but you just don't you're not doing it for me I love everybody in this front row. But you can't be God to me. There is a dwelling with God and an intimacy with God. It's why so many things are failing us. It's why 2023 was filled with frustrations and boredom. Because we're looking for something. We're groaning and we're trying to solve that groaning. But it's the presence of God. And it's the only the presence of God that can do that for us. These other things are good. But they're not God. We're playing this game. Is this your strategy? When you go to do this week. How are you strategizing the presence of God? The nearness of God. How are you strategizing that? How are you looking for that? How is life making room for that? Oh, I know I'm so busy. I got so much going on. Because I'm lifting my soul to something else. In the hopes that somehow it's going to reach back into me and satisfy me and make me happy. Listen, I know right now is a moment of sanity for all of us, right? We're all going, yeah, that don't work. But Monday's coming. And I'm going to roll the dice on Wednesday and I'm going to move my little piece. And I'm going to pay attention to some things. Am I, am I going to pay attention to this? I'll give you this last thought from Tim Keller and we're going to pray. Tim says, all money, talent, health, power, and pleasure in the world are God's. But the greatest treasure he can give us is his life in his presence.
The greatest treasure he can give us is life in his presence, his face, not the gifts of his hands, though they are welcome, is where we find the glory that other things fail to provide. To know his presence, however, is to ascend a hill or a mountain. And doing so is always a struggle. You must repent, seeking a clear conscience. You must know your idols and reject them. And you must wrestle in prayer to seek God's face as did Jacob who said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. What are you after in 2024? What are you all worked up about? What are you angry about? What are you ready to spend money on and energy on? And I'm not saying, and there's lots of these things, there's talents and there's money and there's health and there's power and all those things are part of our lives. But the thing that your soul longs for is the presence of God, the nearness of God. If you let anything else, if you lift your soul to anything else and then you try and interpret your life, how's your life going? Well, my marriage sucks and I hate my job and I don't have any friends and my car breaks down constantly. You know, it could be that nothing in this world can satisfy you because those things are not what your soul is groaning for and you have promoted them to being ultimate rather than, God, your face will I seek. My heart says your face will I seek, God, above everything else. Let's stand up together. Oh, Lord, give us grace right now for a a real pause in our soul. I know we've got stuff to get to today because we got stuff going on this week and running out of time to prepare. Important things are waiting. But Lord, here we are. We're 20, 21 days into a new year and I'm not sure we've adequately paused to read the instructions, to reacquaint ourselves with what, what are we doing What am I after? What do I long for in my heart? What am I lifting my soul to? Lord, would you meet with us this morning, even right now, and awaken our hearts to you, Lord. Awaken a response in us, a longing in us that sounds more like one thing. One thing have I desired, that will I seek. I may dwell in the presence of God gazing upon his beauty being satisfied and delighted and affected inquiring in his temple one thing Lord one thing God I pray for every one of us here where the one thing has been displaced by other things that we would confess that to you this morning that we would acknowledge Lord other things have minimized the one thing, Lord. God, 
just confess that to you. God, I'm sorry. I'm sorry that's my story, but it is where I am and I need your help, Lord. I don't want to stay here. I want one thing to be bigger than everything. I want one thing to be my obsession amongst every other responsibility, every other relationship. I want one thing, Lord. I'm asking that for one thing. Ask the Lord. Lord, it's 2024. I want a year full of one thing, Lord, to exceed everything else. God, I I want to draw near to you. I want to experience your presence more and more. I want a taste of what you're longing to restore in a new heaven and a new earth where you dwell in our midst. Lord, I want that. Some of you are here and you need to take much more serious. What does it mean for you to have clean hands? What does it mean for you to have a pure heart? To not lift up your soul to what is false. Can I just say, I believe there are some here who love the doctrine of justification, but you love it in such a way that it's caused you to ignore the filth of your hands and the impurity of your motives and the things you have given yourself permission to lift your soul up to and you take confidence that you are forgiven and the work of Christ was sufficient for you. But there's more to your life than just acknowledging what Christ did on your behalf. If your hands are filthy, then clean them. Turn away from the things that God is convicting you of. Stop pursuing the wrong things. If your heart is impure and your motives are wrong, acknowledge that to God. Don't just keep running like you're a gospel-centered disciple. It was a door. A door to the presence of God. Run toward him. Draw near to God. If you have impure motives, they're in the way. They're slowing you up. They're creating distance. Put them down. If something has crept in your soul, you keep lifting your soul up to it. You trust in it. You hope in it. You run after it. You compromise to have it. You value it. You obsess over it. God is meeting you today saying, I want to be that for you. I want to be your obsession. I want to be your trust. I want to be the place of your hope. I don't want something else to be that. I want to be that for you. For every one of us who are here, whose heart's longing is to be near to you, God, would you make this year a year where we draw near to you? God, help us play the game well. Help us to have a strategy, not just to exist in this world, but to thrive in being near to you, experiencing your life and your presence, being obsessed with the beauty of who you are. Well, this is our heart's cry. Stand with these, these your saints at Lakeview Christian Center. God, our heart's desire is to receive with great joy the announcement, behold, behold, The dwelling place of God is with you. Oh God, come be near to us this year, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.
Guys, if you are in need of prayer and maybe God is pulling on something that you need to respond to him by praying and come and asking maybe for some to come pray with you, come join the prayer team. Just start this year with God doing some powerful work in the prayer category. If you're a guest with us or you've been joining us recently and you'd like to visit with some of the team, some of the guys in the church, the, join us in the uh, bookstore and we'll, we'll connect with you for a few minutes there.